Hello, and welcome to Clinical Nutrition Notes, a podcast where we speak with guest experts and opinion leaders about the art and science of clinical nutrition, brought to you by Nestle Health Science Canada. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for education purposes. I'm your host, Bethany Hopkins, Medical Affairs Manager with Nestle Health Science. Today, we'll be talking with Julie Chikiro about the use of thickened liquids in the management of dysphagia. Dr. Julie Chikiro is a speech-language pathologist who for 28 years has worked clinically and conducted research into feeding and swallowing disorders from infancy to old age. Julie has contributed to the evidence base for diagnostic use of swallowing respiratory sounds, characterization of thick fluids, and complexities associated with pill swallowing difficulties. Julie is co-chair for the board of the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative, research compliance manager at Mater Research in Australia, an honorary affiliate with the University of Queensland and the Queensland University of Technology. Julie is based in Brisbane, Australia. Thank you for joining us, Julie. You've published reviews around the use of thickening agents in the management of individuals with dysphagia, which have included considerations for the practicing clinician who's interested in balancing safety, nutrition, and quality of life. Today, we will address some of these current thoughts around the use of thickened liquids. To begin, can you briefly describe why swallowing of liquids can be problematic for some individuals with dysphagia? I think the thing about uh, liquids is that they are actually a lot more complex than people imagine. We need to move them from the front to the back of the mouth really quickly, and we coordinate our breathing. We briefly stop it when that happens for a whole range of reasons. Uh, whether it be because of a, a muscular problem or a physiologic problem or a stroke or dementia, any of those types of things, it can really upset the very fine balance between breathing and swallowing. And people can end up taking that the liquid down into their lungs because it's, it's moving too quickly. There are so many little trap doors, if you like, opening and closing. There are lots of muscles that need to be coordinated for swallowing to work effectively with breathing. Uh, obviously, when it doesn't work, people end up coughing, and that can be really distressing for them. So one of the reasons that we use thickened liquids then is to manage that. And that really leads into what I was going to ask you next, Julie, in terms of the complexities that you've described and the, the, the trap door analogy. It seems, you know, swallowing liquids is something that we take for granted and often think it should be very easy to do when, in fact, it may not be. So when should a clinician consider the use of thickened liquids to help manage dysphagia for their patients? I think any time uh, you've got someone who's distressed with, uh, with coughing when they're having thin liquids in particular, some people think that that's normal, unfortunately, and it's not until they try thickened liquids and realise that they're not coughing all the time um, that they recognise that they're, they're not expending all of that energy, they're not exhausted, they're not distressed by it. But also when people have chest infections consistently that are, that are unexplained and that's where our silent aspiration comes in. So we want to be checking in on that to make sure that they're not just quietly aspirating little bits of, of thin liquids or even saliva as well that, you know, where it can be carried down. And there are other things that we need to, to make sure that people can maintain their safety with drinking but also avoid aspiration pneumonia as well. Just coming back on the, the trapdoor side of things as well, I'm referring there to the, um, the epiglottis. And 
one of the things that we know about that is that it, it doesn't work quite like a trapdoor, unfortunately. It doesn't give a, a nice clean seal to the top of the airway, which is what we'd really like. In fact, it works more like a, a rock in a stream. It helps to divert liquids around the opening to the to the airway, but it, it is actually quite easy for thin liquids to get down into the larynx, underneath the epiglottis, and then down into the, the airway. And whether or not people have got the receptors in place to for the coughing reflex to be triggered, and that may be part of their disease pathology at that point in time. So they may not be responding. So we've got those two different scenarios, ones where the cough reflex is really working very hard, and those people are exhausted from the coughing, and they're, they're using a lot of expenditure of energy as well, which increases their nutritional needs too. And then we've got the other group where it is just quietly, silently moving into their airways and making them quite unwell. Uh, and for those things, we need uh, an instrumental assessment and then to try the, the different levels of thickened liquids to work out what's going to work best for them. And really looking, I guess, at an individualised approach when you're getting down to the assessment. So, Julie, with that said, are there data to support the efficacy of using thickened liquids? Yeah, there absolutely are. So we've got a couple of recent systematic reviews that published in 2015, 2016, um, and the beauty of these is that they were done in different parts of the world sort of almost simultaneously. And they came up with the same results, which was really good. So what they came down to was that thickened liquids do help people who aspirate thin liquids. Secondly, though, they also found that liquids can be too thick. And this is where residue can begin to accumulate in the pharynx or the throat. And what that suggests to us for the first time, I guess, is that there is an upper therapeutic thickness level. So a point where making it too thick, and that's been the mantra in the past, that thicker is better, may not actually be the case. And there, there will be times when for some people they'll need it a bit thinner. So it's not always going to the same go-to level of thickness. The other thing that both of those reviews picked up was that we need more research to determine exactly what those therapeutic thickness boundaries are. So thank you for that, that background, Julie. And it is interesting to see, you know, in practice and talking to clinicians, the concept of thickening, you know, just enough by prescribing the minimal level of thickness required to swallow safely has really, we're really seeing that evolution in practice where people are adopting, adopting that, which is really nice to see and, and based on the evidence that you're talking about. That's exactly right. And it is great to see that change in practice. When I first started practicing as a clinician uh, back in the early 90s, it was very much a case of we start with the, the thickest liquid possible and work our way backwards. Whereas we're certainly seeing a reversing trend where people are starting at the, you know, just thickening enough and taking it to the point where we're addressing symptoms, if you like, and managing those symptoms, not by immediately going to the very thickest liquid. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's wonderful to see that that is happening. Now, in terms of changes in practice and, and you know, questions that have people have brought up over the years with respect to thickening liquids, some clinicians have questioned, you know, should we be using thickened liquids at all? Or should we be using other strategies like free water protocols or posture changes? And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, Julie. Um, look, I, I think with this, there can be a real polarisation where people either think it's an all or nothing approach. Uh, and I think probably we're better to look at it from the point of view that um, they all complement each other. They each have a role. 
So the, yes, the free water protocols are really important. We need to make sure that people have a really clean mouth. I think one of the other really big learnings that we had was from some work that Susan Langmore did, again, back in the, uh, in the early 90s, looking at what causes aspiration pneumonia. And it really comes back to the, the pathogenic state of the oral cavity. So if we've got people who don't have good oral hygiene, either because they, they can't clean their mouth or, uh, you know, for a whole range of reasons, then, then that sets up some, um, a change in the, uh, the, the composition of the bacteria in their mouth. And when you aspirate that, and it can go down on liquids, on food, on saliva, it's that that's, that's setting up the pneumonia, if you like. So regardless of whether you're having thickened liquids or water, you actually need to have a really clean mouth, really good oral hygiene to reduce the impact of the development or the risk of developing a pneumonia there. So the free water protocols, what's good about them is that people get the sensation of mouth wetness and they don't feel thirsty. That's a really important thing, uh, particularly for people who are on thick liquids for a long period of time. They really miss that feeling of thirst quenching, mm-hmm. if you like. It also gives an opportunity to, um, to increase their hydration. Now, postural changes, again, these are not a, an all or nothing thing. We can't put a chin tuck in for every single person because we know when people have got poor higher laryngeal excursion where there's poor deflection of the epiglottis, for example, that that's actually a contraindication for using a chin tuck. So you can't, there is no one size fits all. Um, and, and so it would be the same as saying we should give everyone, you know, thick liquids. But I think when you've got a clinician who is actively looking at the person in front of them and working out what's best for them, so it might be a posture change in addition to free water, in addition to thick liquids outside of, you know, with meal times, for example, then that's what we're looking for. It shouldn't actually be a, you know, this is better than that. They all have a role to play. I really like, you know, the concept that you mentioned, Julie, that it's it's not an all or nothing approach. And I think that's really important um, for everyone to keep in mind. And when we're thinking about patient-centered care and, you know, what works for that individual in front of us, it could be a wide range of strategies and the combination may vary from person to person. That's exactly right. Another question, Julie, that arises from time to time is around the bioavailability of the water in thickened liquids. Can you comment on this and what we know from the literature? Uh, For sure, Bethany. It is a a really common question, and I think a lot of it comes back to, you know, this concept of um, our patients telling us that they still feel thirsty. Um, So I, I was fortunate enough to be involved in some research again a number of years ago where we looked specifically at the bioavailability of water when it was mixed with a whole range of different thickening agents, so starches, gums, you know, fanfan gum, guar gum. Um, and we did a, a, a study that was both in an animal model as well as in a human model. And we decided to look at, okay, if you're going to see an impact of bioavailability, which will make it nice and thick. So it was the equivalent of putting thick bacteria, which is the equivalent of EP level four now, or extremely thick. And what we found, um, so we used blood and saliva sampling. We had the rats consuming titrated thickened liquids and, and our human subjects consumed deuterium oxide and sodium bromide to label the water. So these were really quite intricate studies. And what the results found was that the water was really rapidly absorbed and it was equilibrated within 60 minutes. 
and that the water absorption exceeded 95% of the administered dose. And it didn't matter whether you were having starch or gum, um, they were assessed against pure water and those rates of absorption were actually identical. So that was really good. There was another study that was done by Hilladale not long after we published down. Um, and they did a slightly different methodology where they used um, a stable isotope method and urine sampling. Um, and they also found that the bioavailability was unaffected by water thickened with this time a gum to um, pudding thick or level, um, empty level four extremely thick liquid. So we're seeing some very consistent results on some quite fine science. Come back to, well, why is it that you know, our patients will tell us that they're feeling thirsty then. And it's because when you don't have that feeling of mouth wetness, then that's the body's natural response. They actually did a, a, there's another study that was done where they had people hydrated using a drip and they knew that their hydration levels were perfect, but people hadn't been given anything to, uh, to drink. You know, no, so there was no mouth wetness. Most people still felt really thirsty. So I think one of the takeaways that we've got from that is that there are opportunities then to use something, you know, potentially like a water atomizer um, to just lightly spray uh, using an aerosol method the inside of the oral cavity again, making sure that the inside of the mouth is nice and clean. So you can have your thick liquid and then after that, spray the inside of the, the oral cavity with a little aerosol of, of water or, um, you know, a pump action to provide them with that feeling of mouth wetness. Thinking also here, so for any of our patients who might be um, tube fed, for example, people sometimes can forget that oral hygiene is really important for those people as well um, and making sure that we do that and also making sure that their mouth wetness, that, that we address those issues of mouth wetness for them as well. Thank you. It's, I think, reassuring for clinicians to know that um, the bioavailability of water is there when they're using thickened fluids. And then also, you know, strategies to help manage that, you know, feeling of, of thirst and um, what people can do with respect to the oral cavity that can make a big difference potentially for those individuals who are on texture-modified diets, or as you said, maybe NPO and being tube-fed. That's right, Bethany, because, um, you know, as, as I mentioned before, the, you know, this concept of, you know, really looking at the person in front of you. So it means that we can keep them safe by having thick liquids, but we can also address those feelings of thirst, which can be one of the barriers that sometimes, you know, we face with compliance with thick liquids too. Mm-hmm. And I would think it would have a big impact on quality of life as well. Yeah, yeah for sure. Now, Julie, in terms of, of thickening agents, we know that not all thickening agents are the same, and they each have, you know, specialized and, and complex properties. Now, currently, starches and gums are the most widely used thickeners in practice. And I'm just wondering, can you comment for a moment on the differences between starches and gums and the clinical implications for, for use of these agents? Sure, that's a, a great question, Bethany. So, you know, for years we started with the starches and they have a, have a great purpose in terms of being able to thicken. Sometimes they impart starchy quality. Um, sometimes there is thickening over time. You've also got the gums are fantastic from the point of view that they are very stable. And this is one of the, uh, the elements that led to their development because you have the, the stability of them over time. So once you mix them in, um, but also with temperature as well. Looking also now at, at the gums, though, we've got a, you know, there's less, 
of the, the gums that you need to use when you're thickening a product as opposed to the starches, which typically use just a little bit more. We've got differences in the feel of them. So you've got a, a difference, a slightly grainy feel with the starches. There's a more slippery feeling uh, with the gums. And we've had, you know, patients who've said to us who are have texture preferences inside the oral cavity as well, where they, they might not particularly like either the grainy feeling or um, others that don't particularly like the slippery feeling. So again, you know, not necessarily a one size fits all to, to what people will find works best for them. Mm-hmm. And do you find, Julie, that amylase resistance is a feature that's important in clinical practice when looking at different agents? I think it has a place. So uh, I think that comes back to it. really the amylase resistance is looking at our patients with a really significant dysphagia where uh, they would be keeping the liquid in their mouth for, for quite a period of time. So yes, certainly in, in those circumstances, your, um, your gums, are particularly important for use there because of their uh, their amylase risk. Mm-hmm. And we hear sometimes from clinicians as well if individuals are having assistance with eating and they're you know using a spoon and and helping with eating that they'll notice even that transfer of saliva in you know in that process can uh, sometimes make a difference in terms of breaking down the starch. Yeah, you're exactly right about that too. There have um, there have been a number of studies where they've shown that process um, does occur. So that yes. The, the saliva going back into the cup is is just over time thinning out the, the liquid so that they're not actually getting the same thickness level that you first started mm-hmm. with. Now, Julie, we've talked a little bit about different types of thickeners and some of the properties. What do you see on the horizon regarding advances in thickeners from a clinical perspective? I think we can expect to see an evolution of, of thick liquids and liquid types particularly as well. So where we've seen that evolution from using the starch-based thickeners across to the, the Zanzan gum, I think you know we can potentially see future changes. One of the, the things that we're noticing, I'm going to delve into the rheology just for a moment and then show how it, um, it links back to, um, to clinical practice. So a lot of the, the formal testing has been done with rheometers where they've looked at uh, you know, the shear rate of the, the thickened liquid what we're starting to look at now is extensional um, rheology. So when you swallow, if you can imagine the swallowing process, it goes over the back of the tongue and then down the throat. And with the extensional rheology, what they're looking at there is the ability of the liquid to hold together in that process as it goes horizontal and then vertical, if you like. So the, the better the ability of that liquid to kind of hold together in that space rather than fracturing as it comes down potentially, the better the likelihood is the, the hypothesis that it will flow down into the esophagus as opposed to potentially fracturing as it comes down um, and breaking to go down into the airway. So potentially we may see some developments in the future around the liquid's ability to hold together and you know that may change things. We might see a, a real evolution there. I wanted to, to backtrack a, a moment if I could as well, Bethany, around one of the things that, that we're seeing just, you know, how things are changing. So we, we had, we've got these changes also to do with terminology with thickened liquids. And when we were talking earlier on about the evidence base for thickened liquids, a lot of people will come back to some of the randomised control trials that have been completed around thickened liquids. We've got Joanne Robbins' study that was quite prolific at the time for the 2008 study where her conclusion was that protocol 201 it was, that individuals on honey-thick liquids 
had poorer outcomes than individuals on nectar-sick liquids. And it wasn't until you started to dig down into the methodology there where they included the, the measurements that the honey-sick liquids that they were talking about measured 3,000 centipoise. Now, coming back to the old national disaster diet terminology, 3,000 centipoise is not honey-like. It's, in fact, spoon-thick. Spoon-thick was anything over 1,750 centipoise. And their nectar-thick was 300 centipoise. Now, that did fit into the national disaster diet nectar-like category. So, in fact, there was a, an error in the, the way it was reported. And what it should have read was that spoon-thick, individuals on spoon-thick liquids had poorer outcomes than individuals on nectar-thick liquids. So one of the benefits, I guess, that we have with the development of the International Disaster Diet Standardisation Initiative literature and framework is that um, we've got some testing methods that allow people, and it doesn't matter whether we're, whether you're in the US, whether you're in Canada, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in Egypt, the UK, where the testing methods that we've got with the UC flow test allow us to all be talking the same language. And it means that when I talk about mildly thick or slightly thick, that you're also, you know, the measurements can be done so that we are in fact talking about the same thickness level. That's got to be good for our practice going forward in building an evidence base where we can develop those therapeutic thickness levels. So that's the other area that I see really as a really exciting area of development coming forward in the future. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, that's a great example, um, the Robin study of how having consistent terminology and everyone, you know, reading from the same song sheet, so to speak, with respect to what these different viscosities are, can really make a difference because that particular study was interpreted in very different ways by different people and led to, I think, quite a bit of confusion in the dysphagia community. Julie, thank you for your insights and for providing us with an update on current thoughts around use of thickened liquids in dysphagia management. As the population continues to age, the prevalence of dysphagia is expected to increase and the demand for dysphagia treatment, which underscores the need for sound management strategies. On that note, we will conclude this podcast. I'd like to thank you, Julie, for joining us and thank all of our listeners. To listen to more podcasts or to subscribe to Clinical Nutrition Notes, visit our website at nestlehealthscience.ca.